When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Reveille, reveille, donks. Look at us now, tip to tip. This is our life. This is our passion. That's the spirit we bring to this show. I'm Luke Thomas. I'm Brian Campbell. This is Morning Combat. Oh, it's the 10th of April. You ain't got no job. You ain't got nothing to do. And it's time, ladies and gentlemen, for Morning Combat. Hello, everyone. My name is Luke Thomas. I'm one half of your hosting duo. I join you from the capital of Estados Unidos right here in Washington, D.C. We do have a co-host. I'll bring him in in just a moment. want to set the table for you here if we can. So what are we going to talk about today? You guys know the drill. We're fresh off of UFC 287, a great pay-per-view main event, a great overall event. We'll talk about all the ins and outs, the city of Miami, the main event, some of the other stuff all around it. It'll be fun. Plus, we're going to talk a little bit of a boxing roundup. We have, obviously, uh, Fundora Mendoza. We have, obviously, Shakur Stevenson looking amazing. We got a lot of things to get to there, plus DMs and a whole lot more. So thumbs up. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit subscribe if you'd be so kind. And, of course, want to remind everyone, if we are uh, able to do so, we had a live post-fight show. If you want to check that out, youtube.com slash morningcombat, plus tons of great other content as well. We do this live 11 a.m. in the East, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Two more notes. First things first, if you want to try Showtime, and why wouldn't you? You can get Showtime right now. Go to showtime.com, get a 30-day free trial. If you like it, you can keep it. And of course, our next partner is something that BC and I use every day. Yes, AG1 by Athletic Greens, because we want better health better energy. Uh, we don't like taking pills and vitamins. We don't have to take a whole bunch of them. AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins and minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to start your day right. So here's what we're going to do. It's lifestyle-friendly. Whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, contains less than one gram of sugar. No GMOs or nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still tasting good. By the way, it costs you less than $3 a day, so you're investing in a good habit. Taking AG1 of course, it has big benefits. One thing you can do every single day to take great care of yourself. And of course, 7,000 five-star reviews can't be wrong. Trusted by leading health experts such as Tim Ferriss and Michael Gervais. So right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. Just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy... AG1 is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs for your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash morningcombat, athleticgreens.com slash morningcombat to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now, we have to get to the show, but first things first, before that, let's bring in our friend in the great white north. You know him very well. He rivals and maybe exceeds, in fact, BC's vinyl collection He's my friend and yours. He may have given Kevin Holland a contact high. It's Aaron Bronstetter. Hi, Aaron Bronstetter. What's up, Luke? Yeah, my vinyl collection absolutely exceeds that of uh, Brian Campbell. He's a <laughs> relative newbie in the space where I've been collecting for 20 years. So uh, take that, BC. you got a lot of catching up to do. Hey, how was uh, Miami? I know you were just there, right? Yeah, that event, Luke, felt as big as any event I've covered. It Honestly, it felt like... Uh, an international fight week or MSG card. 
Um, I can understand why they want to come back to Miami. It's a great city. It's hot. It's a they've really cleaned the city up. I, you know, I hadn't been to downtown Miami in a long time, and it's uh, it's got really different from the last time I was there, which was probably like 20 years ago, to be honest. But uh, I had a great time. I think it was an amazing card, and I'm really happy to get to break it down with you because um, the vibe there was just electric. And my backstage position was right in the middle of everything, so maybe that's why it felt bigger because you have every fighter that's based in Florida just coming through there. And it felt like, you know, like an all-star team just at all times was walking by you. So I just, I'm blessed to be able to have covered an event like that, honestly. Do you remember what the gate was? It was like 10 and a half or 11 no, and a half million? It was 11.9. It was higher than an MSG gate. It was just astronomical number. Uh, you said that there was like an all-star vibe. Real quickly, what was it about it on the ground that made it feel so different? Because it felt electric at home. Was it just the stakes of the main event and like sort of the celebrity of it all, or was there something else? Well, it, I think it was just the vibe of being in South Florida, to be honest. Like a lot of the fighters are all based there. And it also started off slow. Like I was there on Wednesday for media day, and it didn't seem like there was a ton of media there. And then as the week went on, more and more and more people just kept piling in, and it started to feel bigger and bigger and bigger until it culminated with the main card where like you saw how many different people were in the building. You have like an ex-president. You have all of these different musicians and uh, celebrities from all over the space and all the different fighters that were there. You saw GSP sitting with Usman. It just felt like a who's who was in the building that night. And that's why I think it had such a big deal. All right. Well, with that in mind, we need to kick things off here with our top five. So let's get going if we can. Topic number one, you know exactly what we're going to start for the folks out there. Israel Adesanya made history, really, at UFC 287. What an incredible win. Truly just an iconic moment, which I want to talk more about. But, of course, he knocks out his longtime rival in the boogeyman, Alex Pereira, in the second round. First question to you, Aaron. To what extent and how does this change Adesanya's career legacy? Well, if you look at it both ways, so let's say he would have lost, it would have damaged his legacy I wouldn't say irreparably, but but massively, right? Like, now you can start talking about him starting to look at being the greatest middleweight of all time behind Anderson Silva, which he already is. But, I mean, he's starting to nip at the heels a little bit. If you can get a win like that in that sort of fashion against the guy who is continuously beating you, I, I mean, it, it does wonders for his legacy. Because, let's face it, there's not a whole lot for him to gain from here by facing Alex Pereira next. I mean, it's a possibility, but... He settled the score in terms of MMA. He's not going to kickbox with him again. So this was the moment that he needed in his career because it shows that he was able to overcome something that we really haven't seen other fighters overcome. Like, is there another fighter that has lost to somebody, I guess maybe when Tito beat Chuck Liddell as golden boy, but I'm, I mean, who's counting that, right? Uh, there's just not a whole lot of moments where you see somebody's lost so many times to one person that that's kind of their kryptonite where, you know, when both guys are still in their prime, they get that bounce-back performance, especially with that sort of emphatic finish, in order to really bring them back to where they were. Now he's the middleweight champion of the world. He's overcome that hurdle. He's shown that he's mentally strong enough and talented enough to beat somebody that was able to beat him three different times. I think it just does wonders for his legacy. Man, I got to tell you, this to me was like... I'm not, you're right. Like, there's no real historical antecedent you can point to. We, we've talked a little bit on this show with Brian about Juan Manuel Marquez having the draws and then some of the losses to Manny Pacquiao. Then in their fourth meeting, just absolutely flatlined him in the best KO, frankly, of his career in terms of like what it did to his opponent and also kind of what it did 
to that rivalry and his legacy a little bit. So in some sense, there's a little bit of that there, but that doesn't quite make sense either because Izzy had lost via TKO last time. He had lost via KO one time previously that in kickboxing. So that even that doesn't really account for it at all. I will tell you, this, this felt to me, I, I don't know, like, for example, when Anderson Silva lost his title to Chris Weidman, he never got it back. Now, he lost it much later into his run, but he, he, he was never able to get it back. Most guys, when they lose the title, are not able to get it back, certainly not in immediate rematches. This was not the same thing as GSP versus Sarah. I want to be very clear about that. That was a shocking upset the first time. They had no his, the previous me, ma, meetings. But St. Pierre was obviously able to go back there and then get the title in Canada when he needed it to. But Sarah was not favored to win the first time, wasn't favored to win the second time, but by a wide margin, right? Like this one with Izzy and Pereira was obviously very, very close. But to come back and to beat your nemesis this way, to reclaim the title, to reassert yourself in this division, it's just historically almost standing by itself. And I want something else really occurred to me about this win. And I don't know if you feel this way either, Aaron. This felt to me like Izzy's true breakout star moment. There's been times where I have kind of asserted and Chuck Mendenhall and BC disagreed with me that I was like, you know, I think Izzy's one of the bigger stars. Not that he was on par with, you know, the the Connors and like that in terms of sales or overall celebrity. Really nobody is, or he sort of stands alone. But, you know, I really thought that he had captured the fans imagination and adoration and both of them kind of said yeah but not really I feel like this time he did I think he earned a lot of respect by being able to come back and beat the guy yes but more to the point this KO felt historic this KO felt really big reasserting himself in this way defying people and by the way every time Izzy's back is really up against the wall like in the Paulo Costa fight people thought Costa coming off of the Romero win was going to just dust him that didn't happen and then here we go like he can't beat the boogeyman that he does to me man you're talking about nipping at the heels of Anderson Silva and I agree although that's going to be a very difficult thing to overcome in general but more to the point this was me this was from my vantage point this was Izzy asserting himself in the public space, in the public consciousness, in the sport, and in that middleweight division in almost a way he hadn't done previously. I wonder if you agree with that. I 100% agree with that, and I think it's a great way of putting it. Because if you go back and look at the longtime champions that lose their title, very rare that they get them back. I mean, Aldo's an exception because Connor relinquished the title. But you go and you look at Max Holloway. He hasn't been able to win it back from Volkanovski. You mentioned the Anderson Silva-Weidman example. You don't see a lot of these champions with a legendary run just come back and win it at some point in time it just rarely happens and further to that if you look at this particular win now what right like Israel's kind of cleaned up the division it's one of these situations where people are kind of grasping at straws myself included to try to figure out what's next for Israel because there's always the trilogy match although it seemed like immediately after uh the fight Israel kind of poo-pooed that idea and Dana White said that Alexa's probably going to move up to light heavyweight and then you look at Whitaker, he's beaten him twice, beaten Vittori twice. There really hasn't been a contender that's risen through the ranks of middleweight that's really earned the title shot. The two kind of wild cards are Hamza Shemaev, who, when I put that out there, people were furious because he's always oh, never beaten a, a middleweight star. It's like, well, you, you do understand this is a, a combat sports promotion that's trying to make a lot of money, right? I mean, it seems like a lot of people don't tend to understand that concept. Um, where it doesn't really matter that he hasn't beaten a top middleweight in order to get a title shot because the options are so sparse right now. And then there's Drakus Duplessis, who Israel kind of alluded to in his post-fight press conference. But none of those are obvious choices, right? Like, we're kind of reaching here. And that's why Israel kind of stands atop 
of the middleweight division right now as, as the king once more. And there's not a whole lot of suitors right now for the crown. And also, like the, uh, now that he has beaten Pereira, he has wins over everyone inside the top five, including some of those multiple times. You know, I was saying this on the post-fight show. For the UFC, I'm not saying it would have been better if Pereira had won, but it does create fresh matchups, right? Those are fresh matchups had he won that, assuming he wasn't going to relinquish and go to 205. I want to put a pin in that part of the conversation because I want to come back to it. But I want to go say one more thing if I can. It's something I failed to say on Saturday night. And again, I don't know if you had a chance to talk to Eugene Behrman this week or anyone else from Izzy's camp, but I want to point out something. You had Volkanovsky who had the two disputed wins over Holloway, and then he goes and then really just stuck it to him in the third fight. And then you had this situation, of course, the two in kickboxing and the one previous, and then heading into Saturday night. Boy, I'll tell you what. Those guys at CKB, everyone knows I ride for them probably more than most, but it is worth pointing out here their level of game planning, and their, especially when they get multiple chances at it, their level of game planning is extraordinary. To dummy Max Holloway the way Volkanovski did is just virtually impossible to do. I mean, even Dustin Poirier, who beat him up, took his own licks in that fight. Volkanovski came out looking clean as a whistle. And here in this case, and I have a video coming out about this later, some of the strategic adjustments that they made for this contest were absolutely brilliant. And and what I love about it, Aaron, is not just that it worked better, right? Sort of instead of clinching, punching his way through and then using the fence to his own benefit, right? right? The fence before was almost this place to be avoided. And this time he used it to his effect as Pereira came closer. Dude, these guys from New Zealand, and of course, it's a lot of different teams. There's some Australian guys built in there too. But that that team down there, dude, they are some of the very best game planners the sport has to offer. You give them multiple chances chances are they're going to get their hand raised at the end. Yeah, and they made those adjustments. But the thing about the adjustments is I'm not that certain what they are. Like, it, oh, it's, it's such a high... Well, it's such a high level of, of striker versus striker that, like, yes. the adjustments are so nuanced and so minute that you really have to have a keen eye to be able to really point out exactly what they were. And one thing I noticed on the Pereira side is he had his hands up as opposed to down this time. And I don't know why they made that adjustment, but his strategy was very clear. Whenever Israel was switching stances, calf kick, calf kick, calf kick. And then whenever he went back to orthodox, that's when they started to throw punches. So I think that's what the strategy was, was to kind of take away his balance, try to take his back leg away from him on his strong side. But in terms of Israel's adjustments, like like you said, <laughs> City Kickboxing knows what they're doing and they were able to sort it out. But when it came down to it, they got into that firefight situation where they were, you know, again, very close up to each other in the cage. They were, they were, you know, at a very close range. And Israel just looked like he summoned the hammer of Thor when he reached back and threw that right hand, which would have put any human being on the planet out because it's a match of, of power plus the trademark precision that he has that, again, I don't think any chin on this planet could have withstood maybe a Marvin Vittori whose chin just seems to be made out of absolute granite. But I mean, just <laughs> yeah. uh, just that that punch was just it seemed like it came from like the nether the nether worlds of his brain. <laughs> like it's it's hard to even explain the the force that he put into that thing. So a couple things I'd like to point out. Maybe I'll see what you think about this. Here is a big difference. Actually, Pereira had a different strategy too. I think a lot of the reasons why a lot of folks might be like, well, was there, was there a lot of difference between the so I'm going to say first MMA fight and second MMA fight. Obviously, those are the two most relevant comparisons. Um, there was a big change in Pereira, a huge one. In fact, what you end up going looking at is um, you mentioned the leg kicks. That was a big part of it. But he also did a ton of body jabs. And I have evidence to prove that just in terms of the math. So in terms of his targeting, so this is Pereira's targeting 
in the first fight. 46% to the head, 29% to the body, 24% to the legs. Now, we have less sample size. We only had about two rounds as opposed to four plus. But in this particular fight on Saturday, very different. Just 16% to the head. The body was about the same, 30%. 53% to the legs. That means almost 85% of what he was targeting for Alex Pereira was Izzy's body and Izzy's legs. That, team, to me, seems quite intentional, right? How do you get a guy who's moving a lot and who's nimble a lot? How do you slow him down? How do you make him much more trappable? You kick his legs out and you go to his body and you drain his gas tank. So that was one sort of concerted effort to me on the Pereira side. But the Izzy side, to me, is much more interesting. Namely, there were two big changes that he made in this fight. And number one is, a lot of times in the in the first MMA fight, when Pereira was getting close, you would see Izzy fire right underhook, clinch, and then turn him. Sometimes he would go for a takedown. Sometimes they would battle in that space, but he would almost resist the idea to punch his way through. Let's clinch. Let's slow this down. Let's make this more of my fight. But it didn't really work all that well for him. Obviously, he got finished in the end. Couldn't really get the body lock takedown all that well. And so I think he decided to abandon that. This time, what they did was they allowed Pereira to get close. And one thing that's really interesting about it is if you look in open space, when Izzy is trying to throw the one or the two from orthodox position, dude, Pereira's hard to hit. He leans back. He's got all, he commands range well. He's really hard to hit. So when they, when he shelled up against the fence, dude, just notice how much closer Pereira gets to him. He's right on top of him. Now he's hittable. And the other part is there would be times in the first MMA fight where they would also be close. Sometimes Izzy would clinch. And then sometimes he would punch, and then Pereira would back out. They'd be single-shotting each other real close. Izzy waited until he fired in combination because then not only are his hands low, he's really just in that space wide open, very, very close. Then he can counter because he can't back out anymore. He's, he's way too pot committed. So rather than single-shotting him or clinching him in that space, he waited for him to throw in combination, move close, and then he closed the show with it. it. These are slight, very minor adjustments. But in my view, Aaron, in high-level MMA, slight adjustments carry massive consequences all the way through. But it's also an adjustment that you need to really mentally commit to. Because you talk about the first fight in MMA, which was a very risk-averse approach. Whereas this was a very risk-heavy approach, right? Like you're going to let a guy with the power of Alex Pereira stand in front of you and try to take your head off with that cannonist, if that's a real word. <laughs> Is canonist a real word? I just, well, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, canon yeah. of a left hook. But uh, if canonist is not in the dictionary, feel free to add it because it's like, you know, canon like. That's a BC word. That's a yeah, BC that's a, word. That's a BC word, yeah. So because I'm filling in for him, I have to come up with words on the fly like he does in order to fit the trademark of the show. But uh, just an absolute canon of a left hand. And you have to, and that thing comes out of nowhere. But again, I was very surprised by Alex keeping his hands up so high. I, that was the, the thing I really noticed about him when he was walking forward was that the hands were, were very high. And like you mentioned before, the targeting of the legs. I, I think that it was just an adjustment that I'm not sure he needed to make. But I guess sometimes it's, you know, a paralysis by analysis when you're trying to figure out what your opponent is going to try to do this time around and what you have to try to do this time around as well. Listen, this is the thing about a fight like this. And why when the fight was over, I was like, I would love to see a trilogy. In fact, I'd love to see these guys fight every weekend. At this high of a level of striking, the smallest of errors and the smallest of adjustments can mean the absolute world in a fight like this because mistakes and errors, I mean, it'll put you into a dire situation immediately. Um, and we don't get to see, in MMA, strikers of this caliber go against each other. This is probably the first time ever that we've gotten to see strikers at this high a level face each other, especially on two occasions. Uh, and that's what made this such a remarkable rivalry. And 
why I, you know, my immediate thought after the fight was Trilogy. And I, again, I know that since then, that has kind of been quashed, and we'll see what happens, but I just love watching these guys do their thing. So let's talk about what will be next. I was like you on Saturday night. People were asking me, oh, what do you think is next for Izzy? Again, because if Pereira had stuck around as champ, you got all these fresh matchups you can make. Now that that's really not in play, what direction do you go? So we had tweets from Jan Blachowicz saying he, he would go to 185. Okay, that's interesting. Then you have Robert Whitaker being like, see you soon. You had Hamza Chumayev saying, see you soon. And Izzy kind of poo-pooed the, a subsequent fight with Pereira. But like we, we do go back to the same problem, which is, as we just indicated, Izzy's already beaten everyone in the top five, including in some cases multiple times. If they're not going to do that, if they're not going to go with another fight with Pereira, and maybe he does go to 205, what, what should be next for Izzy? Because I don't really have a good answer. Well, that's why I think you kind of need to think outside the box here. Because, you know, I keep mentioning Shemaev. And to me, if you want to make a lot of money, that's the fight to make. And anybody who's going to, you know, question the credentials of Hamza Shemaev, you can just show them the, the Kevin Holland fight or the Gilbert Burns fight. Like, we, we saw what Gilbert Burns did on Saturday and who he's be been beating and how he's been beating them. Like, Hamza Shemaev went to absolute war with that guy. He's been tested. We've seen him be tested. And then he went and ran through Kevin Holland like a freight train. Why are people questioning this guy's credentials? Oh, he's only beaten John Phillips and Gerald Mearshart at, at 185. He needs to earn it. Did we see how Alex Pereira got to the championship? Like, he, he did two? fight Sean Strickland, though. He, beat, he yeah, did have he to beat, fight he Sean, Sean Strickland. Strickland. He beat a guy that was, I guess, in the top seven at the time. Yeah. Maybe you have Shamayev do that. But let's keep in mind, Kevin Holland was a ranked middleweight for a time. So it's not like he's beating guys that haven't had success at middleweight. I just think that a lot of people are, are too hung up on things like um, on things like that when you have a guy that clearly has the talent to beat top five middleweights. Like, I mean, does he? Do we need to see it? Maybe, but again, if I'm coming up with the main event for International Fight Week, and we heard Dana White say uh, that John Jones has kind of disappeared <laughs> since his win over Surreal Gun. Yeah, hold, let's, to... let's take a, let's take a pause on that. What do you make okay. of that? I don't really know what to make of it, but I, I think right? it probably comes down to money, right? Like it probably just comes down to dollars and cents. Um, that, that's what my guess would be. Because if you want to read between the lines, you know, John's been going on social media being like, you know, oh, Stipe, I thought we were going to do this. But then when Dana White was asked about John Jones's comments on social media and Stipe, Dana's response was, what has Stipe ever turned down a fight? And you can read between the, the lines on that one. Mm. So, and then of course, Dana's saying that John Jones has disappeared. So I don't know if they're trying to haggle for more money. We mm. did uh, have reports that uh, from this past week, I think Ariel Hawani was the first to report it, that it's done for 290 in terms of Volk versus Yair Rodriguez. Would they want to headline International Fight Week with that? I mean, they headlined with Cannoneer versus Israel last year, which isn't exactly a massive fight. Um, but they could always do that. To me, if you want to make the biggest fight possible right now, it's Adesanya versus Shemaev. Because the intrigue would be through the roof. And if you really want to test Israel... That's the fight to make. Now, whether Israel's interested in that fight, I don't know. Maybe he wants to see Shemaev get a win or two, because when I brought up Shemaev to him this week, that seemed to be the indication was, well, let's see him beat somebody. But I, I just don't think right now there's a very good suitor for Israel if it's not going to be Pereira. Uh, to me, that seems like the best option if Pereira does want to stay at middleweight. But at the same time, I see the flip side of that, where Israel says, well, I got that win. Like, I don't know if he needs to fight him again. Do you need to sort it out and say, well, you know, you need to make a 2-1 and emphatically prove that you're the better mixed martial artist. I think on Saturday, Israel did that well enough. And if 
Pereira is interested in moving up to 205. I think that's a better division for him anyways. So, you know, I'm just very curious to see uh, where things go from here. But I'm sure Israel wants to get back in there. If he does want to take a prolonged break, um, I think that's going to be interesting. And then there's another question that hasn't really been answered, which is what's Shemaev's visa status right now for fighting in the U.S.? Because everybody keeps saying he's not going to fight till October. Why? Seems like he's ready to fight. Seems like he wants to fight. Why October? Well, I mean, the thing that stands out to me is it's not in the U.S. <laughs> so, I mean, and I mean, of course, he is popular in Abu Dhabi, but that's the other question that I think is a little bit unsettled. And I, I don't have an answer to that. I don't know what his visa status is, but I just find it curious that he's never being rumored for any of these cards in the U.S. Yeah. All right. Well, how about this, though? And again, this doesn't really do it for me, but I have seen it brought up. It is worth having a, at least a little bit of a conversation about it. What about the idea of Izzy Whitaker 3? Where are you on that idea as plausible, interesting, good, worthwhile? What? I'm not super interested in it personally. Um, I, I I don't think we need to see a third fight between them. It's 2 nothing. Was the last one close? I think it was close, but I thought that Israel did enough to win that fight. I think that whenever you put those two guys in the cage, it's going to be a great fight. I think those are the two best middleweights on the planet right now, and that they've established themselves as such. So... I wouldn't say no to that fight. Like, I think it's interesting, but is it necessary? I don't know. But again, the options are very thin right now for Israel. There aren't a whole lot of them. So I think it ultimately depends on when he wants to get back in there. If he's like, I'll fight on international fight, would you find an opponent for him? And then the what other... About the idea, what about the idea where he could do what Silva did before he lost the title, where, for example, he took a 205 fight against Forrest Griffin, he took a 205 fight against Stefan Bonner, or we're not talking about the championship, but you're staying busy, it's a fight people would care about, right? I don't, I don't know exactly what name at 205 would fulfill that, because that was a different time at 205, but let's just sort of imagine that someone came up with a name at 205, people were reasonably excited about, it's not for the title, but it's stay busy while they figure out what's happening at middleweight. Does that excite you? Not really. I, it would excite me if it was him versus Jamal Hill, or him versus Yuri Prokashka for the title, but I don't know if he needs a keep busy fight at 205, and I also think that he's very small for the division. I, there's I don't think that the risk is worth the reward for that one. Like, I think that it's a massive risk for him to go and fight a non-title fight against, I don't know, like Uncle Ayev or something at 205 just to keep busy. I, I don't see the upside for him there. They might do champ champ. You know, everyone was talking about Pereira versus Hill at 205, uh, which they still might do. I mean, that still seems potentially on the table. Uh, but Izzy could try another crack at Jamal Hill and then do a champ champ fight. That seems possible as well, I suppose. I mean, I don't know if they want to really play with that with 205, given that there's some uncertainty at the top, or at least I should say parody at the top, where anyone could just take it from anybody else. Um, but speaking of Pereira, 205, right? I mean, here's the thing. If he stays at 185, I'm not mad at it, but he's 36 years old. Like, his ability to make it is already, if not merely, it's not impossible, but his capacity to make it is diminished. I think Dana White said, he had two pounds left, and there was an hour left in total weigh-in. So, like, he made it barely under the under the limit. Two hundred five seems like the right move at this stage of his career. Yes or no? If Israel's not an option, then it absolutely is the best uh, option for him because the better fights and the more competitive fights are there for him, and the fights that will annoy him less, and we get to see the best out of him. Right? Like, I don't want to see guys trying to clinch with him and, and hold him up against the cage at middleweight um, and try to take him down. I want to see him do his thing. I want to see him strike. Him versus Jamal Hill is a fight that would really excite me, to be perfectly honest, if Yuri Prokashka is not ready to go. Obviously, Yuri deserves the next shot at Hill when he is ready. I don't think he should be rushed back. And we saw what happened with Dillashaw with the shoulder. We saw what happened with Aaron Pico over in Bellator with the shoulder. If that thing's not ready to go, 
They could pop out in the first, second round, then we get a nothing burger of a fight. And I think that's the last thing that anybody wants to see. So if you can book Jamal Hill against Pereira, I know for Jamal Hill, it's probably not as exciting of a fight because Pereira is no longer the middleweight champion. But that's a fight that I think would be a lot of fun to watch. And I think, again, with Pereira being 36, you got to look at his shelf life in the UFC and what he has left to accomplish while he's still in the UFC. Because to me, if you're not going to give him the fight with Israel again, he has much better championship prospects at 205. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would certainly agree with that. It'll be interesting to see where they go with this one because the knockout was spectacular, but it does create some future matchmaking problems that they're going to have to solve. All right, let's talk about that co-main event, if we can. Jorge Masvidal loses, retiring, following the loss to Gilbert Burns in Saturday's co-main event. Of course, we are going to talk about Burns, but I think with the bigger story coming out of this, at least a little bit, of course, is Jorge Masvidal for two reasons. One, obviously, we don't really know what's next for Gilbert. That remains to be seen. But the other part here is, Aaron, uh, Gilbert Burns, excuse me, Jorge Masvidal has a sort of unique place in the sport. I asked you about what this win did for Izzy's legacy. Different question. Not so much what the loss does. That that I don't really care about at this point. But in general, someone asked me after the fight, what is Jorge Masvidal's legacy in mixed martial arts? I did not have a great answer. I'd be curious to get yours. I do have a great answer, Luke. And here it is. <laughs> it's never too late. That's his legacy. Because he was a guy, they called him Journeyman George now, and all of that. And I won't call him a journeyman, but he was an up-and-down fighter. He was a a guy who alternated wins and losses. He was a guy that seemed to have a, a real ceiling as kind of a mid-card fighter. And he came away from taking, what was it, two years away from the sport where he was kind of isolated and alone with his thoughts and was able to come up with the mental fortitude to have three incredible wins in a row. The Ben Ask, well, the first, starting off with the Darren Till win, Darren Till was still a, a very hot fighter at the time. And I still think has the potential to be a, you know, regain form at some point in his career. And again, if, if, if this is the message, it's never too late, then hey, maybe he can. Then Ben Askren, who was undefeated at the time, who was coming into the UFC as this, you know, being basically fast-tracked to a championship, beats him in five seconds, probably the greatest or up there with the greatest knockouts in UFC history. And then he, they create a championship belt for him to headline at Madison Square Garden against Nate Diaz, and he wins that fight. It's never too late. To turn your career around if you have the combination of you know fighting acumen charisma and the ability to make people care about you the sky is the limit for you in mixed martial arts at any point in time in your career if you can catch lightning in a bottle and i think that ultimately is jorge masvidal's legacy that he was able to take a career that was very middling and turn it into a superstar turn himself into a superstar that made a ton of money in this sport by just being himself and winning. And I think that there are a lot of fighters that if the right thing happens to them, like let's say had Cowboy Cerrone beaten Conor McGregor when they fought each other, like what could his career have turned into at that point in time? It was already pretty hot. But if he was able to do that and then find consistency, he might have been able to get find another title shot opportunity late in his career. It's Obviously, that's not what how it turned out. And I'm not saying that necessarily that he would have won the next fight after that, but... If you can catch lightning in a bottle at the right time in your career, you can elevate yourself to really, really high levels of superstardom. I also think that like there's this cadre of guys you'll see, and they have different results when it hits them. But there are guys who are like good in their twenties, you know, as you mentioned, up and down. They give good fighters good fights, but they lose, you know. 
And then they hit like 30s. Then they hit like early to mid 30s, 32, 33, somewhere around there. And all of it just begins to come together for them. Because they were never like the dynamic guys who were just going to take over right away. But they were pretty close. And then you learn over time, they get better and better and better as they put more and more time in on the mats. They get more experience. And then they're and then they understand the promotion. Like everything makes sense to them at that point. And then they put it all together. Jorge had to do it in this more celebrated way where he was gone on this reality show and then he comes back and then as you indicated he had that the breakout 2019 and it was just kind of amazing for him but like you you know it's very easy to dismiss guys who just don't turn out to be big big stars in their 20s you're like oh well they're 30 now and then it's over for them but it's actually not quite true in mma in mma you can see some late bloomers like this jorge is the most exaggerated example of that but he is part of it too like other guys like diego fajera kind of had a bit of a rebound right around 33, 34, right? They were much better than they were when they were 24. They just weren't really ready for it. There's that as well. Also, like, you know, I I said this to BC all the time. You know, listen, for me, the most interesting part of MMA is its higher end. You know, like, obviously, the main event. Just, you know, undercard guys can have very, very exciting fights, but it's just hard to match everything that a, a big, really important main event for a title brings. It's just not the same kind of thing. But if you just isolate yourself to only the higher end, you actually miss a lot. You miss a lot of really interesting MMA. You miss a lot of really good fighters who are not quite at that you know exalted level, but very much worthy of your respect, who can do incredible things that you never imagined, right? So it, it, there's a lesson in MMA where it's like, you know, you can like whatever portions of it you like, but just don't be one of these guys who only pays, I only watch the main events and I only care about the title fights, man. There is so much more beyond that. And Jorge Masvidal's overall career, but then certainly to your point, that late surge is just living proof that, yes, there are the better ends of things, but the middle portion or the upper end of the middle portion anyway, that's really interesting too. Don't lose sight of it. Yeah, and another good example is a guy who is now going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame and Robbie Lawler. Like Robbie Lawler had a very similar trajectory in his career where he was kind of up and down going from promotion to promotion and then he he managed to again kind of catch lightning in a bottle and work his way up to becoming the champion at the welterweight division with you know when George St. Pierre had kind of stepped away from the sport and really showed how high of a level he was able to get to in his career and then at some point in time it kind of ends and i think Robbie still can put on some fun fights but i i just think it's a good example where you just shouldn't count people out just because maybe they have a rough go or a rough patch in their career you can always kind of bounce back if you get just the perfect sequence of wins against the perfect opponents. It's rare, but it happens. All right, but for Gilbert Burns, he got the job done. He wins, I think, 29-28 or so, whatever it was. Uh, How did he look to you? I thought he looked good. I wouldn't say it was his best performance, but I still think that Gilbert sometimes needs somebody to bring the best out of him, and I'm not sure Jorge Masvidal did that. I think that when you look at the Hamza Shemaev fight, that's where I think you, you got the, the best brought out of Gilbert Burns. And then we also came to learn recently that when he fought Magny, he made a, I think he said it after he, he beat Magny, actually. He promised his wife that he was just going to take Magny down and submit him. He just has the ability to do that, right? Like, he's such a good, well-rounded fighter. But I think that he is now realizing that if he wants to be a champion and he doesn't want to just be a guy who's fighting in big fights and making money that way, that he kind of needs to hit the pause button and wait for his opportunity. It's a similar thing that Tyron Woodley did, even Leon Edwards to an extent did, where you know that you're up there with the best in your division, and you don't need to keep proving it over and over again, like he has been doing. If you look at Gilbert Burns' resume at welterweight, 
like you have the, the loss to Kamaru and the loss to Hamzat in a very close fight. Those are like when, when you you hit that you know you hit the absolute ceiling of that division. And I still think he was beating people that are getting close to that ceiling as well. I think what he's saying right now, like let me be the backup. I de- he's like I'm demanding it. I want to be the backup for Edwards and Covington. And Dana White was like, okay, he'll be the backup. You know, and we saw what happened when Covington was recently the backup. He got the title shot. I feel really bad for Bilal Muhammad in this situation because it seems like he continues to be the odd man out and they're going to have him fight Shavkat Rahmanov, which is not great. Um, but I think with Gilbert Burns, like now he's just kind of putting his foot down and saying, I'm at the stage in my career where it's championship or bust for me. I don't need to keep fighting these guys and proving myself over and over again. Yeah, which he's totally right about. I thought so too. I thought he looked pretty good. I thought he looked pretty good. I didn't. I wasn't blown away. But, you know, he was... He told us uh, during the early part of the week, Aaron, that he thought Jorge was going to come storming at him, you know? So I think the fact that Jorge was kind of reserved in the first round and counterpunching kind of like made him have to readjust a little bit. But he did, and he got the job done, and I thought he he he, he really got... He looked overall pretty good. And to your point as well, you know, like what is the point of fighting other guys at this... I mean, he, he doesn't have anything left to do except fight for a title and see what happens there. Folks forget... Jorge was 38 on Saturday night. Gilbert's 36. Like, at 36 at 170 pounds, that is not young either. He did look, obviously, up to the task, but I think the clock is ticking for him. So, okay, if he's going to be in the backup role, right? So then you have Colby versus... Well, hold on. Is it confirmed with Colby yet? Because you see Leon tweeting afterwards, oh, Jorge fumbled the bag, blah, blah, blah. And that could all just be social media nonsense bluster we're just sort of assuming Colby is it but it does sound like Leon still isn't on board with it have you heard anything different well what's Leon what are Leon's options now I mean if Masvidal would have won he can say no okay but then what then you're fighting fighting Gilbert Burns you're fighting Shemaev if Shemaev decides to stay at 170 for whatever reason like (laughs) Leon does not have good options right now Leon was probably sitting on the couch saying like oh man I really need Masvidal to win this fight because that would have been an easier opponent for him than what's in front of him. But right now, you're the champion of 170 pounds and the options in front of you are Bilal Muhammad, Gilbert Burns, Colby Covington. You got Shavkat Rachmanov coming up. Like He doesn't really have a whole lot of easy options here. And if he, they're going to have him headlining this pay-per-view in London, which is look, looking the way that it's trending for July, like... Sign the contract, dude. You got to defend the title, and it doesn't matter if it's against Covington or Burns or Bilal Muhammad. It's not going to be an easy fight. Um, the thing that Dana White always has to fall back on here, when you look at the welterweight rankings, is Colby Covington is ranked number one. The, they don't come up with the rankings. It's voted on by a panel of you know people that are kind of on the fringe of the media. I, I hate to say it that way, but that's kind of the truth of it. No, that's true. They're on the fringe of the media. That's true. But either way. All Dana White has to do is say, hey, look at the rankings. Who's the number one guy behind Usman? Sorry, I said that Colby's the number one guy. Colby's the number one guy that Leon hasn't beaten twice. I, that's all he has to do. Point to that and say, like, listen, these rankings are determined by people who are watching week in and week out and deciding where people are going to be. Now, if the media wants to do something about it, the media members that rank the welterweight division, rank Bilal ahead of Colby. Rank Burns ahead of Colby if you think that they deserve it, right? But for now, the highest ranked guy behind Usman is Colby Covington. That's the, the reality of the situation. It's not something that I'm saying to defend the decision, but it's what I'm saying to point out that if the UFC wants to say, hey, we're, we're a meritocracy-based promotion, he's the next guy in line behind Usman, they can do that. 
All right, so then you have Usman next, Burns doing backup. Bilal's going to fight Rachmanov, we think. By the way, was Colby in attendance in Miami? As far as I could see, he was not. I didn't see him there. I never heard anything about him being there. I didn't see any pictures of him there. And he trains closer to that arena than anybody else, really. I mean, MMA Masters is in Hialeah, which is pretty close to the arena, whereas these guys over at Team Kilcliffe and um, American Top Team train out where where you and BC were staying uh, last week. So... I was kind of surprised, but when Colby was asked if he was going to be in attendance for UFC 287, he always said, oh, I might be, I might not be. Interesting. All right. Well, just the same. Uh, I'll be curious to see what happens with Burns beyond just the backup role. Um, all right. Point number three. Let's talk about something further down that card, if we can, which was really kind of interesting. Rob Font. Boy, what a... Talk about, talk about making a splash on Saturday night. He upped his stock dramatically, beating Adrian Yanez or Yanez. On the main card. So let's talk each one. We'll start with how this affects their stock, both for Adrian, both for Rob. We'll start with Rob. Huge boost, right, Aaron? But how much of a boost? Well, first off, I'll start off by saying it's Yanez. We're going to go with it because... Okay, you know, I, I'm, I'm fine yeah. with it. I'm you, fine with the guy it. People, turned, people, get, yeah. people get bitter. You're the guy who turned me on to it. And the reason why I'm saying we're going to go with it is I spoke to Adrian. I said, like, you know, Luke says it's Yanez. Um, is that... True and like, why do people call you Yanez? And he said, "Well, people have just always pronounced it wrong." And I and here's the thing: Adrian's father passed away. He loved his dad dearly, and the one thing that we get in this life is our name. And for him to honor his father, I think we should honor his father by saying it properly, saying Yanez. Fair so enough. For me, at least, for here on out, it's Yanez. Um, but you know, I saw Tyson Chartier uh, at the end of 2022. I think it was December. He was uh, there cornering somebody at uh, a uni- unified event that I called. And uh, I said to him, I really like this matchup for, for Rob. And I think Yanez is an incredible fighter. You know, but this sport is matchups. And I just thought that if Font caught him once, and we've seen Adrian get caught before, I, don't think, I didn't think that Adrian was going to be able to process it as quickly as he needed to because Font is so fast. Like, when Font has you hurt and he stings you, he is like white on rice. Like he is going to come after you. He's going to keep stinging you and keep stinging you and keep stinging you and see if you can take it. And that's what he did against Yanez. I didn't think it was going to end in the first round. I thought it was going to probably be a prolonged decision. But uh, I, I did not like this matchup for Adrian. I think there are a lot of better matchups up the rankings for Adrian. And I said to Adrian when I spoke to him on Wednesday, I said, right now you're at that stage where if you get a win here against Rob Font, like you are going to be entering murderer's row like there's just nothing easy from here on out and even if you don't beat rob like you are in the bantamweight division and you are swimming with the sharks and we we learned that from raul rosas jr who we're going to talk about a little bit later on but the bantamweight division there are no soft landings here and i thought that uh you know adrian i think can hang with a lot of these guys ranked at bantamweight but again i just thought that matchup for him was not a great one and it was good to see Rob Font rebound after that year off because he's been during that in that pressure cooker of the bantamweight division as well. And I think he's as good as anybody in this division. It's just a, from matchup to matchup, the volatility is different. Oh man, you, we were talking about the main event, right? Where like basically the first person to make a mistake is going to lose. You know, that's really the way it goes with those two fucking guys in Izzy and Pereira. Uh, it was. Fairly similar here, right? At Bantamweight, anyone in that top five or even top ten, man, you make a mistake against those dudes, it's going to be real bad for you. But we're talking about his stock. I I will say this, Aaron. 
This might be his best win. Now, let me explain why I mean by that. Partly, it's just a the celebration of it, and because Yanez was riding this massive hot streak, right? Like the next big thing, five and zero in the UFC, like all these uh, finishes, all of these bonuses, the whole nine yards, right? He's riding in hot. You were at the media day where the champion, well, now the now champion Izzy was asked about him, and he gave this like effusive praise of Yanez, and so. Partly, Rob just spoiled the party, and that gets you a lot of attention. That was one of it. But I'm looking at some of his other wins here, Aaron. Okay, he had the win over Cody Garbrandt, but this is in 21-21. It doesn't mean the same thing. Plus, it was a decision. Marlon Moraes, the one before that. Okay, God bless Marlon Moraes, but you know he's certainly seen better days. Ricky Simone's a good one, but he decisioned him. Sergio Pettis is a good one, but he decisioned him. And he decisioned him. And now we're all the way back four years ago in 2019, and now even before that, 2018. He does have a win over Thomas Almeida, but Almeida had lost two of three heading into that one. And then there's Matt Schnell and some other ones. Dude, you know, you can say he beat some other guys like the Simone win or Pettis win that maybe those guys are better or something like that. You can say that. But the wins weren't as impressive. They didn't stand out. This win stood out. This win stands out big time. Off for a while, coming against a young, hot prospect, and he blew the doors off of him. I think this is Rob Font's best win. I don't know exactly what he's going to get from it. And also, Aaron, I wonder about this part, too. I think he'll get a nice matchup from this. He he has earned one. He wants one. He knows. I think 35-36 himself, he knows the clock is ticking. Did it change your view of his upside, though? Did it change your view about whether he could hold a title in this weight class? Well, in terms of holding a title in this weight class, I mean, I think that anybody in this weight class on the right night can win a title because the level is just so high. But for me, what I needed to see from Rob Font was that he wasn't going the way of Marlon Moraes. When you have, those were devastating losses that he faced. Like that loss to Cheeto was a beating. When you take that year off, now is the time where you find out where you're at and where the people find out where you're at. And a loss to Yanez, to me, would have kind of, you know, kind of put, been the nail in the coffin of the career of, of Rob Font in terms of his upward traje- uh, trajectory. I think he really needed this win as a confidence boost. He was so hyped this week going into that fight. Like, if you watch my interview with him on Friday, he's holding an iced coffee and he's smiling and he's I like... Saw. I saw, yeah, yeah. He's like, his eyes are, are popping out of his head and he is just like... I've never seen Rob Font like that before. But when I saw him on Friday, I was like, wow. I didn't know Rob Font had that, like that he just had that energy about him. Um, it's not that he's not an energetic guy to begin with, but he was like... It was like you were talking to a guy where, like, you know, like, every now and then you walk into, a, a like, a barbershop or you walk into a place and somebody starts talking to you and they just start, like, you can see their minds kind of moving, a, you know, a million miles a minute and they just start talking about stuff and they have this intensity about them. Like, it felt like that talking to Rob Font on Friday. Uh, and I loved it. And I, I, I just thought it was a tremendous performance. I still think Yanez can bounce back. He needs to make some adjustments. People also need to realize... His coach, Saul Solis, passed away. And Saul Solis was like an, another father to him. So he lost his father and he lost Saul Solis over the course of a couple of years. That's a hard thing to overcome, man. And to have to learn a whole new style and train with all new guys. He's training with really good guys. He's training with uh, Ralphion Stotts. And um, a, a young prospect, last name, I think it's Cameron Smotherman. This guy is going to be something big in the UFC one day, in my opinion. But uh, I, I think that... Rob Font, like, I, or sorry, that uh, Yanez kind of needed something like this to happen to, to, as kind of a wake-up call 
for him. And I think that he's just going to get better, man. Like, I, I, I think that he's got all the skills. He just needs to put it all together. He needs to shore up his defense a little bit. And I think he'll still, he'll be back. Like, he'll be back in that top 10 in no time. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing for me. Is like, you look at them on skills. Someone was asking me last week, like, hey, what are the differences in their boxing styles? Just their boxing styles. And man, in many ways, like, they're not a hugely different fighters in that sense, right? I mean, there are obviously some differences. No one's an identical twin. But, you know, they do a lot of the same kind of broad stroke things. But if you look at the stats... Before the fight, Aaron, man, Yanez takes a lot of damage, man. I, I think upwards of, um, I think either five plus or six plus strikes a minute, dude. That's just that's just way too much at this level. Way too much. Now the way he did it, obviously with those collar ties and then bringing the right hand around, I think that caught him by surprise. You know that that I I didn't see that coming, and God bless Rob Font for being so clever and so devastating. But for me, Rob Font's. In terms of the scale of it and the celebrity of it, best win. Probably going to get him a great fight. We'll see. For Yanez, I agree with you. This definitely hurts, but he just seems way too good. And, and oh, by the way, still 29 to not really get much better from this. I think he absolutely will. This was a painful lesson for him. He seemed devastated after the fact, which was obviously hard to see. But if you just look at how good he is, how hard he works, and how young he is, relatively speaking anyway, I think there's still a lot of... Uh, belief in him but there's work to be done man you just can't take abuse like that statistically speaking or in this particular case anyway and then expect to move to the top of that division it's just way 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 too much of a liability yeah i agree and credit to rob font who said you know when i was in adrian's spot marlon Moraes gave me the fight like so he was okay kind of fighting down right. to prove that he still had it um and i thought this was the perfect fight for him not just not just the fight itself, but in terms of matchup, I thought it was the perfect fight for him at this stage of his career because, you know, if Yanez beats him, again, I think that, that kind of limits his upward trajectory from here on out. But he needed to prove to himself that he could still beat Adrian Yanez. And like you said, Adrian has ta- taken a lot of damage. He gets hit a lot. And that's why, again, I, I just thought from a matchup standpoint, Rob Fott was something of a nightmare matchup for him because Rob Fott hits you a lot, <laughs> right? Like, right. Rob, if there's one thing that's consistent about Rob Font, it's his volume. If you look at the amount of strikes he landed against Aldo and Tito Vera, in which were both kind of lopsided losses for him, he landed way more than both those guys, right? right. So if there's one thing that's certain, it's that Rob Fond is going to land on you. And it's just about how much of that you can take. And it just seemed in that situation, he just got stung over and over again. Yeah. And by the way, his jab, man, he's got one of the best jabs in the sport. Rob Fond's jab is just excellent. It's hard and, you know, it's powerful and he can use other things to set it up like he's just really really gifted in that way I was and also last thing on this one Rob Font took a year off and listen we all know about it like does ring rust affect everyone you know listen it affects most fighters most of the time but it doesn't affect every fighter every time that that year off did the exact opposite of rust it rejuvenated him to your point about his energy and he didn't look like lost in there at all or he needed to make adjustments at all Man, he was ready to go from the word, uh, from the opening bell. So a little bit of lesson there. If you're an experienced fighter and you know yourself really well, taking a break can honestly be a great thing for you, not a bad thing. Yeah, it's rust versus recovery, right? Because if you're doing it for recovery, right. you're not sitting out, right? Like you're still practicing, you're still learning. And one thing that he told me that I thought was really cool was we've seen, of course, uh, Calvin Cater got badly injured in his last fight. A lot of this camp, was Calvin kind of on the sidelines watching Rob and rather than being in there with Rob because they're, you know, of course, trained together a lot and have, you know, it's been an iron sharpens iron situation for them. But he's been able to kind of sit on the outside looking in 
and give Rob all of these little pointers along the way that he wasn't able to give him when he was in there sparring with him all the time. And I think that did wonders for him as well, because Calvin, I think, is one of the brightest minds in the game. Calvin's an amazing guy, for sure. Shouts to the New England cartel. Um, all right, so let's get to this one where I appear, I appear to disagree with just about everybody else on it. So we'll we'll put that as the disclaimer up front. So Raul Rosas Jr., he loses his first UFC fight. He's had two of them. He was one and one in his UFC fights, not counting contender series, obviously. In fairly convincing fashion, I would argue, against Christian Rodriguez. So let's pitch it to you. Uh, Aaron, let's see where you're at on this. Probably not where I'm at, but what does this mean for the teenager's future? Well, we talked about this before. It's bantamweight and there are no soft landings. And do people grow from wins? Yes, they do. But first off, this matchup was terrible for him from the outset. When they announced this, I was like, what are they doing to this kid, right? Like, there's not a whole lot of bantamweights that you can put him up against where he can shine and look great like he did in that last fight against Jay Perrin. But Christian Rodriguez... If you've spoken to anybody around Christian Rodriguez, they've told me for years, this guy is an uber prospect. He's incredible in the gym. This guy's the next guy. If you saw him on Contender Series where he didn't get the contract because he missed weight, he smoked the guy that he faced. And I thought it was criminal that they didn't give him a contract even though he did miss weight because I was like, this guy's got like championship potential. I think Christian Rodriguez was a terrible matchup for him. Um, I think that's first. Second, when you match him up with a guy like that, you're relying on a kid who thinks that he's completely untouchable to actually be untouchable, which that's great in fantasy land. But here in the realities of the UFC bantamweight division, if he gets crushed, that can do a lot for his self-esteem, for his self-belief and for his growth at 18 years of age. Because at 18 years of age, you feel invincible and he was invincible to that point. And that's the problem Because when you learn you're not invincible, that can be a crushing blow to you. And I think that Raul Rosas Jr. has the mental fortitude to overcome this and get better and better. But being 18 years old in the UFC, like, I don't know if we're ever going to see somebody that young, save for like a prodigy like Max Holloway, who at age 20, I think it was 19, he actually came into the UFC that became a champion. Like, we'll see it from time to time. And maybe Raul Rosas Jr. is that guy, because we saw Holloway have some early losses as well. But the guy landed zero strikes through two rounds. And he won that first round. He needs a lot of polishing, a lot of work. I think he's uber talented. I think he's got great skills, tremendous skills. But at 18 years of age, like, again, when you're in the UFC, I think this can be a devastating blow for his career. We've seen people like Sage Northcutt get the push, Paige Van Zandt get the push, and and fall on their face. And I'm not saying that that happens to Raul Rosas Jr. He can definitely overcome this. He can definitely look good in his next fight and get right back on the on the tracks. But... A loss like this is going to be a very tough pill for him to swallow, and he's got a lot of work to do to be able to face a lot of these killers in the bantamweight division, even at the lower rungs of the bantamweight division. Yeah, to me, this is this is all bad. Now, um, could have been worse in the following sense, right? Where, let's say Christian Rodriguez really put a beating on him. That didn't happen. He didn't get beat up real bad. So I think in that sense, he actually got a little bit lucky, if I'm being honest, like because that would have been really bad. But he didn't get that, and okay, that's that's fine. I have so many problems with him being in the UFC, man, and it's a couple of things. Everyone talks about his skills, and let's be clear. On the grappling side, certainly positionally and the wrestling and the way he's able to like chain things together, he looks pretty good to me. He looks like that part of his game looks UFC-ready to me. And Again, not the top of the division, but he can get the Christian Rodriguez's of the world. And you can see in that first round, he was actually able to, positionally anyway, either dominate or at a bare minimum lead the charge. 
So if he could, you know, apportion that better, which is also going to be a learning experience, which I do think he can do, that part looks ready-made to me. But he tries to force submissions. There's virtually no ground and pound, which is a problem. And, dude, his stand-up, you know, I'm not going to bag on the kid and say, like, I've got better stand-up or I, you know, I'm an old, washed, pathetic piece of shit. But, like... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. That stand-up is not ready for this level. It's just not even close to being ready for this level. And he's going to get chewed the fuck up if he has to stand on the feet at any amount of time with anyone even bordering on Christian Rodriguez's level. Like, it was worrisomely bad. And when I say worrisomely bad, not as like the critic from on high who gives you his opinion. More like... Dude, if that's the tools you have to take into a fight, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt doing shit like that. That's the first thing I'd say beyond everything else. The second part I would say is, man, this was this kid was saying shit like, I'm going to be champion in a year or less. In a year or less. You know, it's one thing to have confidence in yourself. It's another one to be like completely delusional about where you stand amongst, you know, grown men who've been doing this in certain cases almost as long as you've been alive um it's just profoundly out of his depth in terms of understanding everything and also i don't know who manages him but like whoever manages this kid like putting him in there man that's a real questionable call because he easily could have had a developmental deal like other fighters have had where they you know exist on the lfas of the world and everything else and they get the requisite experience because man like, this didn't used to be the case, but now with the way regional MMA is set up, you can get a lot of really good experience there. You know, you can get five-round fights. You can get guys who are D1 wrestlers. You can get all kinds of different stuff in ways that just wasn't as accessible 10 or 15 years ago for up-and-coming prospects. And now just rushing to the UFC. This is what I always tell people, man. It's like everyone at UFC gains experience there and learns from it and gets better. Fair enough. And he's no different, and I think he'll benefit like from that as every other athlete would. But this is not the place to get formative experience where it's the first time you have to do X or it's the first time you have to do Y in these very mundane scenarios. Not like the champion where you know it's a very specific kind of thing that only happens in very narrow circumstances. I'm talking about formative experience, formative building blocks. To me, Aaron, here's what it looks like. His skill set is basically not ready at all for this level. They rushed him out here. He does seem to have some things that are very, very good. And we'll see how you know mentally resolute he is. But I, if you want to get the kind of building block experience to contend in the UFC, don't do it in the UFC. Do it before because the process can get fucked up real badly from here. I very much think this is a whole... I cannot guarantee disaster. And I hope we avoid it. But Aaron, I got to tell you, I'm worried that we're headed to something approximating that. Well, I'm not taking as much of a nuclear option on this as, as you are. You know, I mentioned Max Holloway, and I think the difference with Max is that he was, I think he became a champion at the regional level before he came to the UFC. If you look at Raul Rosas before he fought in Contender Series, I don't know if he beat anybody with a winning record, right? So you're not getting the experience where you're being tested, where you're being put into deep water and you have to swim out of it. He never really experienced that. He was always the hammer, and eventually you're going to be the nail in the UFC. And a loss in MMA is not a big deal. 
you can bounce back from it and you can show that you belong there. And I think against Jay Perrin, he showed that he was able to, to fight kind of, again, the lower rungs of the Bantamweight division and do well. So I'm going to take a wait-and-see approach on this because I knew going into this fight how good Christian Rodriguez was. I don't think people knew about him or knew his name or unless you really follow the sport closely, I don't think a lot of people were tuned in to how good Christian Rodriguez was. Definitely. So I've got to learn about whether this was more Christian Rodriguez because, again, when I saw my contender series, I, I thought to myself, this guy could be a champion one day. He's that good. So I've got to figure out, is this more about Christian Rodriguez or is this more about Raul Rosas Jr.? Because if Raul Rosas Jr. comes back and is able to win two, three fights in the UFC, again, the train's right back on the rails. I'm not willing to write him off. And I also, even though he's 18, I think he does have that it factor to him. He, You mentioned that he said he was going to be a champion in a year. And while there are levels to delusion involved in that, <laughs> fighters tend to have to be delusional. Like, it's not that they, whether they are or not delusional... A lot of the times, you'll see fighters going to fights with bad injuries. Like, there's a level of delusion there that you have to have in order to win, right? Like, you have to tell yourself, dude, I'm the best in the world. I can beat somebody with one hand tonight. Like, my, yeah, my shoulder, might, my shoulder might pop out, and it might not pop out during the yeah. fight. Like, maybe. It's popped out 30 times in practice, but maybe tonight. Tonight's going to be the night where my shoulder doesn't pop out, and everything's going to be fine. Because if you go into a fight, and you're TJ Dillashaw, and you're fighting for the championship, and you say... My shoulder's probably going to pop out tonight. In fact, he told the, the official backstage. But TJ Dillashaw is built differently. He has, his career has, I think, benefited from a, a degree of delusion. And that's okay. Like, I, yeah, I'm not going to fault Raul Rosas Jr. for saying Yeah, yeah, but I, 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 I agree and I don't. Like, yes, like, for sure. Anybody who's ever talked to a high-level MMA fighter, they have said things to you about what they're going to do that always sounded, like, ludicrous. And sometimes it was ludicrous. Sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes it was right on the money. Here's what I mean. It's one thing for a guy who's 25, who's got good good to decent experience on the regional scene, maybe has a loss or two, has fought tough guys, you know, has made maybe some money, not a lot or whatever, but they've got a certain amount of experience and then they're still delusional. It's one thing to be delusional when you haven't even touched the world, right? To your point, not having hardly any guys with a winning record. I looked at his record too. I think there may have been one guy on it. And the guy he beat on Contender Series was pretty good, you know, relatively yeah. speaking. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not to say that he never beat, uh, he didn't face any adversity, but he didn't really get any kind of good taste. It's, yes, I can have delusions coming out of high school about what kind of life I'm going to lead, but then life smacks the fuck out of you in the face. Do you have delusions after that? That's the question. Once you've got a little bit of experience in the world and you're like, whoa, this might be a little bit tougher, do you still have it up here to dream big and then go for it, which all people should on some level I'm just saying, I, I'll take someone who's 26, 27, who has seen the world a little bit, got their ass kicked sometimes, and still wants to drive forward versus just some 18-year-old kid who's wet behind the ears. I mean, this is my biggest issue with Raul, Raul, Raul Rosas. He seems like a nice kid. He wants to do great things for himself. He does have some ability that I, I very much respect. But he is he is green. He is green. He is very much underdeveloped. He's the green banana at the grocery store, we're not talking plantains. Like he's just underdeveloped. He's not really ready for this. And now he has to be something to get to the next level in the UFC. Hard to do. Hard to do. I'm glad you clarified that they weren't plantains. I mean, I mean if anybody's yeah, a fan I mean, I love a good plantain, but yeah, you know what I'm saying. But listen, there are a lot of different samples that we can look at here of fighters that start really young. There are always going to be the Sage Northcuts and the Paige Van Zandt of the world. But then there's also the Macy Barbers of the world who says she's going to be the, the youngest champion in UFC history. 
and then she faces some adversity and she's able to bounce back and win some good fights. And then you've got Kelvin Gastelum, for example, who's still only 31 years old, who is able to, again, have some ups and downs and get to a championship level and, and not win the championship and still get pretty far. And then, like I mentioned, there's the Max Holloway example. So I think it's going to come down to how skilled he is. I think it's going to come down to his development and how well he is able to develop. You mentioned the striking is quite a bit behind. And then there's also, like, another example is Chase Hooper, who has phenomenal grappling. But, you know, it took a little bit of time for the, the striking to catch up, and he still is being beaten by, like, a Steve Garcia in his last fight, and is then taking another kind of prolonged time off to go back to the drawing board and figure out when he, you know, what he's going to be able to do from here. There, there's bumps in the road in, in MMA for everybody. And I think that, again, I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt on this one because I do think Christian Rodriguez is really good. So... I'm taking a wait-and-see approach. I'm, I'm not as concerned as you are, perhaps, but I also understand what you're saying and uh, and believe that what you're saying certainly could come to fruition. It's just, there are a lot of different examples that we can point to, and I don't know if we can necessarily point to how Raul Rosa's Jr.'s career is going to go from here. I think he's in one of the toughest divisions in the sport. I think he faced a really tough kid who not a lot of people knew about, and uh, that Rosa's was a favorite based on his popularity and based on his hype and trajectory. I get that, but I'm willing to write this off as him just facing a better fighter on Saturday. Yeah, I don't think that's crazy. And just to clarify, I'm not making a prediction about how it's going to go. The future is very unknowable, right? I just mean to say that, I'll put it this way, if I was his management, I would not have put him in the UFC this early. That's all. I just think that was a mistake. Um, Not to say he can't overcome it, but I think that was a mistake. Now, before we move on to the boxing here, real quickly, if I may, two pieces I want to get to. Number one, what can you tell us about the UFC's return to Canada? I saw you break some of this news. For folks who may not have heard, very quickly, tell us what you know. Yeah, so a couple of weeks ago, the, I, the thought was that the UFC was going to either go to Vancouver or Calgary. And then it shifted pretty dramatically to Calgary. And then it turned out that there was some sort of scheduling conflict with the arena. And I don't know if that was necessarily... Dana White said there was a minor hockey team that had it booked. I don't believe that is the case. I think that they were probably holding the arena in case the Flames make it to the playoffs and um, could get to the Stanley Cup. Like, if you're, uh, you know, an arena, you have to have it planned that you are going to be in the Stanley Cup or whatever sport if you're going to be in the NBA Finals. The arena has to be on hold. So a lot of people are like, oh, the Flames aren't going to make it to the Finals. So it's like, it doesn't matter. The, the the city of Calgary is not going to, or like the arena is not going to come out and be like, we're going to hold this UFC event here because we don't think the Flames are going to make it to the Stanley Cup. Like, what does that say to the team, right? Like, it's just not something that you can do. <laughs> so um, I think the, the tides last week, about midweek last week, really shifted towards Vancouver. And they were gonna, going away from Calgary, and the Calgary was basically out um, because they wanted to get the announcement out there by this weekend. They were hoping, I think, that the Flames were going to be out by then so that they could go forward with that announcement. That wasn't the case. The earliest the Flames could be eliminated, I believe, is Monday. Was it today? Um, so they had to go with their backup plan, which was Vancouver. And um, I think that Vancouver is a great spot for the UFC, especially in June. In June, there's no better place to be than Vancouver. Vancouver in June is like one of the most beautiful places in the world. Um, and then I was hearing rumblings that Nunez was likely going to headline the event. Weren't sure if it was going to be against Aldana or Pena. It was kind of a, a discussion. And then... Very swiftly, it was apparent that it was going to be Pena. So I kind of knew that that was where they were going with the main event. I didn't know if it was done or not. Then when I interviewed Dana White, I said, you know, what? do you have a main event for this? And he said yes and volunteered the information. So, you know, good news for me. But uh, that's basically what the situation was. It just kind of pivoted 
from Calgary to Vancouver. Um, why, why were they so quickly. interested in going to Calgary and like, what, what's so great? I mean, I'm not being dismissive of Calgary. I'm just saying, why were they so, why was that their number one target? I guess is what I'm asking. I'm not too sure. They haven't had a pay-per-view in Calgary since I think it was UFC 149 where the, the event wow. just absolutely fell on its face and it was terrible. And then they said they were going to make it up to Calgary one day. And some people, for whatever reason, completely forget that Dana White had his 50th birthday in Calgary, headlined by Eddie Alvarez and Dustin Poirier. I think they made it up to Calgary. I think Calgary is good now. Joanna and Jacek was on that card. Like, <laughs> they made it up to Calgary. I don't think they need to hold the pay-per-view there, but I think they just wanted to hold the pay-per-view there. The last event that they did in Canada was in Vancouver. So maybe they just wanted to go to another city. And as much as people are going to dislike me for saying this, there's basically only five viable pay-per-view cities in Canada. You've got Vancouver. You've got Toronto. You've got Edmonton and you've got Montreal. Um, is that four? four? Oh, sorry. Four. I, there's five. So Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, Toronto, and Montreal. So those, those are the five. I'm, I must have missed one on that first count. Um, they're not really going to do a pay-per-view in Ottawa, I don't think. So those are the kind of the five cities. So any given year, that's where the pay-per-view is going to be. They haven't done one in Montreal in got to be close to 10 years now but uh yeah calgary is a good choice for a pay-per-view it's a good city the province of alberta has a ton of rampant fight fans it's a massive um you know when they when they went to edmonton fans were in the arena for the very first fight like it was probably 75 percent full for the very first fight they eat it up there so i think that uh, calgary would have been a good option too but vancouver is just such a beautiful city in june and i think that event will do very well you know what's so weird is I go back to the Ultimate Fighter Nations, Bisping versus Canada, and they had that at in Quebec City mm-hmm. at the, again, I'm sure that my pronunciation is going to be terrible, the Coliseum Pepsi, Pepsi Coliseum, for 5,000 people. And I was like, why is this fucking event here of all places? And then they just stopped going to Canada, by and large, not too long after this. It's really weird. They used to be there so much more regularly, including in Quebec City, of all places. And now it's like, we're down to five cities for a pay-per-view. Yeah, I suppose it's true, you know. It's just kind of weird. Yeah. There are a lot of options for fight nights. But, uh, yeah, I I think that in terms of pay-per-views, I don't think they've done a pay-per-view outside of those cities in general. So I I don't see pay-per-views going anywhere outside of those cities, to be perfectly honest. Like, those are the big metropolitans in Canada. Yeah, I went to uh, the Shields GSP card in Toronto, whatever, 129, whatever mm-hmm. one that was. I was there too. Dude, Toronto was great. I love Toronto. What a great city that is, you know? Um, yeah. I wish they'd go I, back. As someone who lives here, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> right. What am I? I'm, I'm sitting here telling you this shit. All right, last but not least, UFC President Dana White afterwards suggested they might make a bunch of, they might make an annual stop in Miami. I want to know if that's a good idea, but I want to ask it in this way. Certainly, that event was a success. Certainly, I watched at home. I felt like I got my money forward on pay-per-view. You were there. We're all talking about how great it was. But one thing I'm beginning to notice that I'm a little bit concerned about, you mentioned the gate was astronomical. Right, it was. You talk to like the London fans, and here's what they say. They're like, yeah, man, listen, you can be in London. You can throw up a a big event and charge outrageous ticket prices, and people will pay for it because that's just London Saturday night out, blah, blah, blah. But you're pricing out all of the, basically the middle class and every working class fans who can't afford the tickets. It sounds like something else happened like that in Miami. Now, is this just, they do this on occasion in certain cities, Aaron? Is this the new way the UFC is going to be doing these big events? Because I like the idea of going to South Florida. It'd be great for me because we obviously have a CBS office in Fort Lauderdale, but I'm a little bit concerned about these like huge gates that are great for UFC but are pricing out everyone who's not there for the show, like in London or in Miami. 
yeah, they will price everybody out. If you if you know how much Florida's grown in the last basically since the pandemic, the amount of people that have moved down to Florida and it's it's just such a booming economy there right now. And the level of affluence is just unreal. Like I was staying in a part of Miami called Brickle and apparently the condos there cost like $12 million for a condo or something along those lines. I was walking, I'm seeing Bentleys left and right. Like the the amount of affluence in Miami and South Florida right now is through the roof. If they did a card in January there every year in Miami with the amount of people that um, come, the, you know, the snowbirds that come down and spend time in South Florida every single year, they're going to do a gate like that every year. Like it, it almost doesn't matter what they headline with because the level of affluence in that area right now is just absolutely unbelievable. It's it's unbelievable. Like it, there's no really other way to describe it. Yeah, by the way, our producer here is saying that the Newark tickets for just the nosebleeds on the pre-sale were 200 plus. So like the worst seats were, I mean, it, go, it goes back to, to something I've been saying for a while. Like number one, go to regional MMA because it's cheap. You support your local it's fighters. Better, smaller venue. Smaller venue. You can, get, you can get much better seats that way. Sometimes the action's pretty good. And then on top of it, go to the fight nights. If now the UFC obviously has been at the apex for a long time, and still that still plays a big role. But they are doing more fight. Like they did the fight night with Yair and uh, and Brian Ortega in Long Island, and obviously the main event didn't work out. But that idea, I think, is just going to be better for the fans. But for the pay per views, man, it looks like it's either your big dollar or your nothing. Although I will say one thing about Miami, <laughs> South Florida in general, it's also showy wealth that people don't have. Like to your point absolutely true like there's tons of money down there there are also a lot of people who don't have tons of money who pretend to who rent the bentleys on the weekends and then turn it back in on sunday you know what i'm saying i guess i do i i don't know though i can't tell them apart i can't tell the, the, oh trust the, me it's a big yeah. thing it's a huge thing down there i'm not looking for it it's not, it's not of interest to me but uh i see what you're saying but yeah i mean hey vancouver is probably the most affluent city in canada too so they're going to places where they can sell tickets for big money abu dhabi it's known for being an opulent place. So, right. like, like you said, if you really are a diehard MMA fan and you want to experience MMA, regional events are awesome. They're, they're smaller venues. It's worth supporting your local fighters and, and helping grow your grassroots community. And fight nights, you can also get pretty good seats. But I also think the fight night tickets are going to start going up too, right? Like the UFC have really figured out a way to maximize their gate potential for these events. And I don't know if it's because of the pandemic, but I do think that the growth of the sport during the pandemic certainly makes more people interested in going to their live events than ever before. Yeah, that I think is absolutely true. Um, let's talk a little bit. I know you're not the biggest boxing fan, but topic number five, let's do a quick boxing roundup if we can. Um, let's go first for the Showtime side of things. I had, I had to call the prelims solo because BC's on vacation, but I did it. It was kind of fun. And in the main event, I don't know. You must have seen this, right, Aaron? The main event, just the final sequence there. Brian Mendoza. I think we must have the footage. Please roll it if we do. Brian Mendoza, look at this left hook. I mean, you gotta be absolutely shitting me with that shot. What a brilliant shot! And I want to tell this story if I can about Brian Mendoza because it doesn't matter if you're a boxing fan and it doesn't matter if you're an MMA fan or one or the other. What a story this guy has. About a year ago, a little bit lo- longer, but about a year ago. Aaron, this guy was on swing bouts at the end of cards where people are leaving and the lights are coming on and you're just, they're fitting you in at the end. He had a loss to Jesus Ramos, who was really, really good, who just beat Joey Spencer on the Benavides plant card. So, you know, it's like 
he was in these like uh, uh, on uh, these these situations that don't go anywhere. He did get a better fight, but then he lost. Then last year, or actually not even long ago, like six or eight months ago, he gets a short notice fight, less than two weeks, to take on former two division champ or two belt holder Jason Rosario up a weight class at one sixty. Ices him with one of the most this insane uppercuts you'll ever see. One punch. Rosario, at age 27, retired from the sport after that. Then it gets him this fight against Sebastian Fundora, who, by the way, is six foot six, 154 pounds, and has a longer reach than Oleksandr Usyk, who has three of the four heavyweight titles. So let's back up a step. About a year or so ago, he's on swing bouts. He gets a short-notice call up a weight class, wins it in dramatic fashion, gets an interim title shot against this kid, and ices him with a single shot. Look at this left hook he's about to throw right here. I mean, just fucking phenomenal as he steps in. Bang! Right over the top. Catches him. What a story for Brian Mendoza. You were just talking about how it's never too late. Don't count guys out. Brian Mendoza, living proof that what you're saying is true. Well, if uh, if Showtime were looking to do Fundora versus Charlo, they're all like McBain now. Mendoza! This guy comes and spoils the party. I mean... What a left hook, just from the absolute depths <laughs> to, to take him out. I mean, absolutely unbelievable. And like, yeah, like we talked about, you look at Jorge Masvidal, it's never too late, man. Like, the stories of a lot of these combat sports athletes that just hit lightning in a bottle at the right time. And it looks like Mendoza certainly fits that mold. You know, who do you think is next for him? Because I think that a win like that starts to get him into the, these really, I mean, this was already a big fight, but into the really upper echelon of, of big fights in boxing. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, here's the problem. Like, this is why this fight came to be. Mendoza was looking for a win after beating Rosario, or looking for a fight, excuse me, after beating Rosario, wanted to go back to 154. So, okay, that sets him up. Dude, Fundora beat Lubin a while ago, Erickson Lubin. That made him the mandatory for Charlo. But Charlo was supposed to take on Zoo. That was supposed to happen. It couldn't happen. So, Zoo fights Tony Harrison in Australia. He wins that one. And now they're supposed to make it, but the hand of Charlo is all messed up. So it's still Zoo who's going to be fighting him. So the winner of this didn't really get a title shot, even though it makes them the mandatory for Charlo. But it's less about that, right? Because even Fundora, Fundora was asked, like, if you win this, do you think you'll fight Charlo next? And he's like, probably not, right? Like, I have no fucking idea how this is going to go. So I'm just trying to stay busy. Fair enough. And he took on a tough, tough guy like this. So it doesn't really set him up right away for anything. He's going to have to defend this interim strap maybe once or twice if he can. Maybe they give him Tony Harrison. Maybe he comes back around. It's really hard to say what they're going to do with him. But I just, I, I just love fucking stories like this. I love guys who, in boxing, man, it's really hard to get a good opportunity. You have to take it on short notice. You have to take it against someone else in their hometown. You have to take it when the other guy is the network favorite. Whatever. Like, it is all different kind of circumstances that can crop up in different fights where you just have to negotiate a great de- degree of unfairness, and he did. Uh, and by the way, back-to-back lightning uh, and thunderous, both of them, KOs for Brian Mendoza, one at 169, 154. You got to love it. Uh, just real quickly, I want to mention this. We don't have to dig into the de- details at all. Shakur Stevenson in Newark, by the way, where he is from, defeated Shuichiro Yoshina at KO 135 of round number six. I don't know to what extent you saw any of this fight or the highlights. Here's the deal, right? Stevenson, one of these like prodigies in the sport, but missed weight on the scales at 130, so he loses all his belts, goes up to 135, takes on Yoshino, 
and beat this dude from pillar to post. I mean, it wasn't even close at all. So it sets up a potential fight between him and the winner of Devin Haney and Lomachenko. So uh, for folks who've been kind of waiting on Stevenson to get the right weight class, and he's always been good defensively and slick and sharp and outpointing, but this time, man, he beat the fuck out of Yoshino. Um, really, really a dominant performance by Shakur Stevenson. The future, I think, honestly, of American boxing, if I can be honest. Yeah, this is what I'm talking about. Like, this is what we need to see in boxing. Because he loses the belts at 130 on the scales, and that's never a good thing. And he says, I'm never doing that again. Goes up to 35 where there's better competition. Has a performance like this. It's like, now we're looking ahead to some great matchups, which we always see fall apart in boxing. But now we can see Shakur Stevenson versus Loma or versus Haney. It's like, sign me up, man. Like, now we're getting to see, like, the best of the best in, in fights that are just going to be awesome and will absolutely deliver because it's just the absolute highest level. And Shakur Stevenson is certainly in that echelon and is moving his way up. Like, this is somebody that everybody should be excited to watch. And also, like, you know, Tank Davis and Ryan Garcia in 12 days is mm-hmm. at 136. <laughs> you know, Tank fights at 135, too. Like, dude, the names at 135, so many great fights you can make over there. Yeah, man. I mean, there's no better time to be a fan of, the, you know, the smaller fighters in boxing because there are so many good ones. And I think inevitably, as long as people can figure out the red tape and the politics that always waters boxing down, we're going to get to see a lot of great fights. And uh, I think that that's, you know, it's an exciting time to be a boxing fan because, you know, as Dana White has always said in the past, oh, you know, it's always a going out of business sale and the... The, the big fights always fall apart. It seems like we're starting to trend towards the big fights happening more often than not, which I just love to see. Yeah, and the other part, too, is, um, you know, it, we, we, we don't know. Brian and I don't know anything, but there have been some rumblings for a June matchup between uh, Spencer Crawford, which I know has fallen through a million times. So I think people are rightly waiting for that to be, like, fully official and everything. But, you know, just getting Tank and, and Ryan out there, and um, it was sad we didn't get Usyk and Fury, but... To your Might point, still. yeah, got time. I, yeah, there's still time, and also like just these young, and also we, we, they, he got injured. But Stephen Fulton Jr. taking on Noya in a way is you know these it's the young guys in boxing that are leading the charge. It's the young guys who are taking on risk and like signing up for shit that some of the older ones aren't doing. So I really appreciate that. Also, one last note on the boxing side, if I may, uh, Bam Bam Rodriguez won, broke his jaw in the sixth round, and then fought six more rounds with a broken jaw and won. So put some respect on his name. Also, Mirajan Akhmadaliev, who was supposed to be the other guy across Stephen Fulton, who was like the hammer of all hammers, he lost via decision, which is interesting as well. Um, okay, that is it for our top five. With that in mind, let's do DMs from the Diggity Donks, shall we? All right, you guys know the drill. We put up posts on social media. Y'all fill them up with questions. The producers pick them, and then we answer them here. Uh, Aaron, I will go to you first from... Dolan M. Johnson, what were your thoughts? Oh, good question. What were your thoughts on Izzy taunting Pereira's kid after the fight? Classless or did he have it coming? Now, if you folks haven't seen his son after uh, Pereira knocked Izzy out in the second kickboxing fight, there it is. He falls over and pretends like he's Izzy, just sort of mocking how he fell. And then here comes Izzy. He points at the kids, walks over to him, and then collapses like they did to him Back in his second kickboxing fight. There he is right there. You can see him doing it. All right, Aaron. Classless or did he have it coming? All right, Dolan M. Johnson. Here's my take on this. When you look at that situation, it's very, very petty for him to do that. And what did he say in the post-fight interview? I'm a petty guy. 
And that's the explanation that you need, because it was a very petty thing to do. But Israel keeps receipts. We've known this about Israel. This should not come as a surprise to anybody. And this is, people are going to hate me for saying this, because of, yeah, I'm a father of three, so I, I have the credentials to say this. Sportsmanship is important in life. It's really important to show good sportsmanship. What his son did to Israel is, of course, bad sportsmanship. And he's just a kid, and I get it. He's just like, he's just playing around, and he doesn't know any better. But several years down the line, Israel does this to him, and he learns a lesson from it as a kid, where it's like, you got to be a good sport, because what goes around comes around. And it's like, listen, it's a kid. I know it. Believe me, I get it. It's a kid. But do you not think that the kid learned a lesson from that? Like, it's, it's not the end of the world for him. And I'm sure he's sad at the time that his dad got hurt and, and was knocked out. But it was probably really sad for Israel at the time that he got knocked out, right? Like, that probably hurt Israel's feelings. And if you hurt someone's feelings and they have a chance to hurt your feelings back and teach you a lesson, that's one of those lessons you learn in life coming up. And I, I, listen, I don't want to see an adult pick on children. I understand that that's not the right thing to do. And that it's a petty move. But Israel acknowledged that it was a petty move. And I, I don't think that it's going to be that damaging for the, for the kid to, to see that and be like, well, listen, now I've learned that when I do something like this to hurt someone's feelings, they can hurt my feelings back. It's a very, <laughs> it's something that you teach kids in school and as kids. Like, I teach my children this. Don't hurt your sister's feelings because you're going to be in trouble and you're going to have to go to your room and then your feelings are going to be hurt. That's how we teach children lessons. And it's not Israel's responsibility to teach Alex Pereira's kid a lesson. It's Alex's responsibility. But that's how I feel about it. It's uh, everybody's saying it's classless and he's not a good sportsman and all that. And again, I agree that it was a petty thing to do. But Israel acknowledged that. And I think we just move on. I, I kind of feel like um, I don't like it. I don't I didn't love it and I still don't love it. But I, I'm at this stage where um, like, for example, Remember the big brouhaha like a week or two ago, whatever it was, when I think it was, what's her name, Caitlin Clark in the women's, she plays for Iowa basketball and she did the you can't yeah. see me bit. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think her name was Angela Reese, did it to Angel, her Angel later. Reese, yeah. And there was this big controversy about this. I got to tell you, I didn't like either of them doing that. I don't, I don't there's, I, I don't mind like a little bit of trash talk, but I have to tell you, like in sports, I don't I don't really thrive off of it. I mean, there are times when it's really good, and there's times when it counts, but like it just seems like we're living in an age where sports uh, athletes are almost expected to be, um, you know, really really shitty to one another, and then there's a whole group of people who really get off on it. I'm not saying you do. I'm just saying that there does appear to be people who really like it. So I don't really love it, but it just seems like. The toothpaste is out of the tube on this one where everyone just decides in sports, you know, this is kind of part of it. And I think that what I, I don't love what Izzy did at all, to be quite clear, but like, I, I just don't know what to say anymore. It just seems like this is where we're at with professional sports today, where we just, I think people are drawing a line because he wasn't a competitor, so that's a little bit different. But then he inserted himself into the equation as a as a as a child. I don't love it is the short answer, but I also just have to say, in general, I don't love our overall. I don't love the way we're the place we're at in professional sports with trash talk and like stunting on an opponent um, after after a loss. I'm just not. Yeah. It doesn't well, do much for me. I would like it a lot less if if Israel didn't say he was being petty. The fact that he acknowledges that he was being petty, and that was like his first instinct was to acknowledge that he was being petty, I think I, I can accept that a little bit more because he's being honest about it. Um, 
listen, he dunked on a kid. At the end of the day, that's not the, the classiest thing to do. But like like MJ said, Aaron, yeah. fuck them kids, right? <laughs> exactly. I took that personally. <laughs> he went into full MJ mode. I saw that kid fall to the ground, and I took that personally. I took um, that but personally. But yeah, Israel is known to keep receipts. And I mean, he did the bow and arrow thing with Alex. I mean, that's just how Israel... Has Israel not shown in the past that he's a brash individual? That when he's got his emotions going, he does all kinds of wacky things? That's who Israel is. And listen, if you don't like Israel, you're certainly not going to like him more for doing that. And if you love Israel and you love the way that he's done these kind of histrionics in the past, you're going to love Israel more. That's just the way it is. And that's why we live in a, a society that is completely divided right now. The only time I ever got mad at someone, the only time, and folks may not remember this, and he's obviously a very different person right now. Also... I will say I'm a little bit more sympathetic to what guys do immediately after a fight than I am like a week later, you know, when their, their brains have calmed down a little bit. Um, but Michael Bisping had a really contentious rivalry with Jorge Rivera. And then after the fight, he went and spat on their corner. Now, again, I want to be clear. I like Michael a lot, and I think he has calmed down significantly. And, you know, and I don't condone that. But it's pretty clear that, like, these guys right after fights – you know, mm-hmm. they do yeah. like their brains are hopped up on all kinds of chemicals, quite literally, and they're just not themselves sometimes. Now he doubled down on it afterwards on social media as he did, but I am at least a little bit forgiving in the aftermath. Yeah, and from what I remember with Bisping and Rivera, Rivera's team was doing all kinds of wacky stuff to him that whole week in the lead up. Yes. And that doesn't necessarily forgive it. And like you said, in that moment, you're just running on pure adrenaline and your brain is like, do this, and it's like, Yeah, okay, I'll do that. Like you don't really have that filter in that moment. All right, from at dog.stone. This is a fun question. After witnessing the quadrilogies between Figueredo and Moreno, and now uh, Izzy and Poetan, has MMA math possibly found its greatest equation? Namely, nerd who can fight plus scary Brazilian dude equals dynamite rivalry. What do you think of the math? Well, it adds up. I, I like it. But, but what happens if Caio uh, Boralio, the fight nerd, ends up coming up and he's like a scary Brazilian guy who's also a nerd. He's like that. He's that fight as one human being. So we're going to get really meta on that. But uh, yeah, listen, certain matchups in this sport are always going to be cool and are always going to deliver. And I think that uh, both those rivalries certainly did that. I don't know if it's a coincidence that one guy's a super nerdy guy and the other one is like a scary Brazilian guy, but... Um, yeah, I, I don't know if there's other examples. I'd have to really think about that. But uh, well, you know what? You know what he's really saying, and these guys are in the same weight class, right? Like Figueroa and Moreno, and then and then obviously the yeah. the two middleweight guys. It's just David versus Goliath, at least in people's minds, right? It's one guy who's super fucking scary, and one guy who's definitely not, at least relative to the opponent. And there's that 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 fun little interplay between the these images of might, and then what are supposed to be sometimes the opposite. Obviously, we really know these guys are all pretty dangerous that that david and goliath kind of idea seems to be permeating here i think this one's a little bit different than a lot of these other rivalries because to me this was more of a david versus goliath thing like this was can a guy overcome all of these mental hurdles at the time i'm sure he feels like david he's smaller than this guy and in his mind this is his goliath he's this, this, this massive guy that's been able to beat him on three occasions like i don't know if we've really seen any examples of someone, and we talked about this earlier, that's been able to really overcome those kind of odds and the kind of mountainous thought process that goes into having to to, to beat somebody who has consistently beat you over time. Um, I think that's what made this particular rivalry special. From Nate the Great Lux, 
Who revived their career more, Gastelum or Font? Ooh, great question. I'm gonna go Gastelum. I think people have really written Gastelum. Oh, I disagree with that. I don't think I don't think people people wrote Rob Font off. Like if you watch the commentary of that Gastelum fight, when Gastelum's landing good shots, they're like, "Oh my God, Calvin Gastelum knows how to punch and kick still, and can still hurt people." Like. <laughs> It seemed like they thought Chris Curtis was going to destroy him. The whole fight, they're talking about how great Gastelum, Gastelum looks great, Gastelum looked great in, in what was a really close fight. Like a fight that I think you could argue Chris Curtis, if you would have given him rounds two and three, like I don't think you could have had a massive problem with that. But um, like I, I just thought they were talking about Gastelum like they expected him to just get completely face-planted and obliterated. Um, not to mention that Gastelum has had all sorts of um, health issues. He had to pull out of all these fights like... I think the expectations were very low for Kelvin going into this fight, and he really exceeded them. Whereas with Rob Font, I think people knew that was going to be a close fight. I don't think people have written Rob Font off. I think, you know, from an optic standpoint, it looks like this young up-and-comer is being set up to beat the veteran. But I think that Gastelum, in my opinion, um, you know, got back a lot more that he had lost prior to this fight than, than Rob Font did. I don't think Rob Font had lost that much steam. Uh, I will agree. So here's the problem, right? You, to your point, I mean, Gaslam had way more, like, his stock had dropped so far, right? He had to change teams, like all kinds of health issues, all kinds of shit, right? And so given that the expectations were so low and he performed ably, there was this, like, wow, he looked really great. The problem for me is, and to your point about Font, Font, he wasn't written off. He was just kind of there, over there, but he wasn't really in the mix of where people had... Certainly, their bantamweight attention, I think, is a fair way to put that. So, in that sense, I think you're right. But the problem for me is, I think that Gastelum won it two rounds to one, but that headbutt in the second made it so dicey. Like, yeah, you know, I, I spoke a little bit over the weekend to Chris Curtis, and he's just beside himself about the headbutt because he did get knocked out. He told me he got knocked out, and then he came to, like, in the middle of just getting hit from the headbutt. And then had to kind of rebound and still was only like a couple of strikes short, numerically anyway, in the second round. Then he won the third round, I thought, pretty cleanly, although one judge gave him 30-27, whatever. The point being is, it was really close. Like, it wasn't like a dominant performance, whereas Font came in there and just, you know what I mean? Like, he just blew the fucking doors off of him. And so, Gaslam had further to go, and so I think in that sense, maybe he revived it more. But Font put put the stamp on the evening, that's all. Yeah, Chris Curtis possibly wins that fight if the referee calls timeout for that clashing of heads. Right. Because then the judges know that that's why he ended up on the ground. The The result of that fight continuing, and uh, th- that really did, I think, cr- cost Chris Curtis the fight. Because prior to getting dropped by the, the clashing of heads, he landed some real stinging shots against Gastelum in that second round. So I think that really was the turning point there. And it's tough. I mean, these things happen so fast that... Um, you know, sometimes in real time, a referee just doesn't see it, and it happens. I mean, the commentary can talk about it and say that they saw it and they're showing it on the replay. They have that luxury. The officials don't have that luxury. The judges, the referee, none of them have that luxury. So um, I think that's a fair point by Chris Curtis. The other thing, too, last thing I'd say on this is for Chris Curtis, um, I love the way he fights. I love that he is such a sort of boxer in MMA, but he does a lot of body work. I really... I wonder if that hurts him in some level where, you know, if, if someone hits someone else with a body shot and there's a visible reaction, that, that will work really great for you. But Kevin, Kel, excuse me, Kelvin just kind of no-sold all the body shots. And I don't want to sit here and say that judges don't count body shots, but it, can, it, it depending on your angle and in the heat of the moment, 
if they don't have a visible reaction versus popping someone's head back, I, I wonder, I wonder if that's hurting him a little bit. You've, you've taken judging courses. Do you feel like, again, not a bias against body shots, but a natural inability to properly inventory the effect they are having in real time? Yeah, for sure. And I think that uh, the first round of Israel and Pereira is a good example because I thought that Pereira won that round from just landing consistent calf kick after calf kick after calf kick. And the the thing is, judges don't often gauge it based on um, strike position. They gauge it based on visible damage. And I think that that's a bit of an issue for sure um, and something I would like to see cleaned up. But I do think that Chris Curtis was attacking the body of Kelvin by design specifically for that opponent. I think that Kelvin has kind of a bigger, lower body. Um, and, you know, he's not, he's not in the best shape for a guy that's in the middleweight division. I think that when you, when you have fighters that are built that way, the body shots tend to impact them more down the stretch. And you could see that Kelvin was sort of slowing down down the stretch. So I don't necessarily know if that's something that he... I'd have to go back and watch his previous fights and see his, his um, target, I guess, percentages for those fights to really determine that. But I thought that that might have been by design for Kelvin to kind of open up the head late, late in the fight when he had gassed out. All right, from at M Porter 440. Was it just me or were there more ads than ever in the octagon this weekend? Whose D do you have to ask Aaron Bronstetter to get an MK ad in the cage? What do you make of all the advertising that just plastering it everywhere these days? Look at that, man. Yeah, and they did the one where you could put your name in the octagon. So I think it's $1,000 if you want to just get morning combat written in there. So there's your answer to the question. Just you, If you go to Fair the enough. UFC website, you can buy a position on the the, uh, the mat now. So it's $1,000 to advertise morning combat. If any of the rabid fans of the show want to do that, I think that would be a really cool gift for you guys if one of the fans ponied up $1,000. And if, if somebody's really wealthy, you can put my name on there too. Although that, I think that would be kind of a weak move, to be honest, to see a journalist's name in the, uh, in the cage. But if, if it's not me paying for it, I, not, I guess there's nothing I can do about it. Pull, pull, throw up that uh, picture one more time for the folks in the back there. All right, so I just want to point out something. You got the can in the middle. That's fine. At each of the eight sides, there's an ad on either side of the black line, right? So there's that. So there's inside the black line at all eight stops, outside the black line at all eight stops, and then at each sort of frame, uh, I should say each position, like where is he is standing, there's some kind of ad. And then in certain corners, they have ads as well, plus on the corner itself and on the top padding at the very top end of the octagon, then outside of it um, for DraftKings as well. You know, listen, I'm not mad at the UFC for making money, and I went back and I watched some of the like, initial Reebok uh, announcements, you know, why they were doing this and whatnot, and obviously a lot of stuff just doesn't really apply anymore, but they weren't, like, super big on making the it looks cleaner co- comment. I think that's more something that kind of happened in the community more generally, like, hey, it looks cleaner that uh, these fighters are wearing kits as opposed to that. But I just got to say, dude, they just littered the octagon with ads. They got the condom thing for getting your hand wrapped. They're just monetizing every fucking space of this in a way that is, I guess we're used to it, but it does destroy the argument to the extent anyone has made it that this really cleans up the looks of the fighters. It's like it might, but they just dirtied everything else. If there's inventory to sell, they're going to sell it. But how many press releases have you got from the UFC? It's like, we're announcing that this is the official cucumber-flavored vodka of the UFC. <laughs> like, they, they just have always come up with every every different, like, sub-genre of so every true. different thing in order to get uh, value out of their... Yeah. Like, how many of those have you seen? It's like, yeah, this is the official, like, coconut-spiced rum of the uh, UFC. Like, they right. have every different type of liquor on the planet 
um, that, that they can get sponsorship money from. And hey, I mean, <laughs> we saw the valuation, $12.3 billion or whatever it was compared to the WWE. Maybe the WWE should start putting ads in their ring. I, I don't watch, so maybe they already have that. But maybe you should just use the w, WWE ring as a, a place to put inventory. Yeah, I don't know what they do. And the last thing I'd say on this, too, is also that... Um... I lived through and worked through the days when the UFC really struggled getting advertising money. You know, like we joke about it. And I remember corn nuts to the core. Dude, I remember when they were doing get Mickey's Mickey's malt liquor, mm, get yeah. stung. That was the fucking thing in the middle of the octagon. Like they've gone from Mickey's malt liquor to, you know, uh, some bigger brands. They still, you know, one thing they haven't really overcome. They don't have like a high end telecom sponsor. And they don't have a high end, um, like well, not high end, but don't they don't they have, have a Boost major. Mobile? Is Boost Mobile not high end? I don't know that your your telecom. Yeah, when I say telecom, I mean like Verizon or AT and T. Yeah, okay. Yeah, uh, or T Mobile even. But um, but they also they this is another thing they've struggled with. They briefly had a deal with Dodge, and I know they obviously have had some deals with the Ultimate Fighter with Harley Davidson. But I know two of the things that have eluded them are telecom and like a real good car manufacturer as their as their um, advertiser. Other than that, though, they've made significant headway. Well, they need to do subgenres of cars. It's like the official hybrid crossover of the UFC, yeah. the official hatchback of the UFC. Just get every different type of car to sponsor. Or in, in BC's the case, the official orange Subaru. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In, in case you need to go off-roading like BC does every weekend. Um, last but not least, uh, at underscore, I think it's Kate... LW or K8LW, what should be next for Fundora? Should he move up? As I mentioned here, uh, six foot six, 154 <laughs> pounds. He has an 80 inch fucking reach. Understand that'd be an 80 inch, that's only four inches less than John Jones. And he basically fights at the MMA equivalent of lightweight. Like just a completely absurd total uh, 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 body frame. He should go up to 160, right? Right, uh, Aaron? But here's the other part too. You can go up to 160, that's fine, but dude, he's got to learn to fight tall, right? He's got to be having a better jab. When guys can just punch in like that, like Brian Mendoza did, like, dude, the punching only gets heavier at 160 or 168, so I'm okay with him moving up, but it needs to be moving up in conjunction with, I think, some other adjustments, right? Dude, what's next for him is a damn meal. Like, gets, eat some food, <laughs> Remember Kendall Grove's nickname was Goliath. He was like 6'6", but he was 185. Like, that was Goliath in MMA. This guy's 55 with an 80-inch reach. Dude, like, go go to, like, Shake Shack or something. That's, like, that's the next move. Kendall Grove. Hold on. He is, you're right, he's 6'6". 185. So, I want to see his reach if we can. Let me pull up his topology, topology profile. His reach, 79. Yeah. So, Sebastian Fundora has a taller or longer reach (laughs) than fucking Kendall Grove. Yeah, who is Goliath? Kendall Goliath Grove. That is in, that is absolutely fucking insane. So yeah, mm-hmm. he should move up. He should go to 160, but... Go to 180. He goes that high. You go to 175. You go to 175, you're fighting some fucking punishing punchers. But um, your, point, your point stands just the same. Uh, Aaron, that is it for us today. Anything you'd like to plug or let the folks know about you're doing or where they can find you and all that other good stuff? I make it easy on everybody. www.aaron.report has all of my links. So just go there. And uh, instead of me having to plug all kinds of stuff, I bought a domain name to help make your lives easier. Hey, did I know Twitter changed a bunch of stuff since Musk took over. Did they take away something from you? I thought they did, right? No. 
everything's everything's good here on my. You end. have all the same tools. Yeah, I've got everything everything going. Um, you know that's uh, it's it's good. You know, you can put those long form videos out. I actually I got the Twitter Blue subscription so I can edit stuff because I, yeah. I, I consistently make mistakes. So I yeah I know to me I, it it was worth me paying whatever it is ten bucks a month so that I don't have the immediate remorse of having to delete and then copy and paste and do all that. The edit function for me alone is worth the money. So if you yeah, want to edit- po- if you want to put that meme on my account, this MFR paid for uh, Twitter Blue. I mean, by all means, knock yourself out. But for me, no, it no. actually has real value as opposed to buying myself a blue check mark. Uh, listen, uh, my rule on this is, you know, I think Musk's takeover of Twitter has been oh, it's been a colossal uneven. disaster. Yeah, I it's mean, not it's be, not been be great. Real. It's not been great. But I think there is value to Twitter Blue. Not so much the verification part. I don't really care about that. But I can post videos up to ten minutes long, whereas otherwise it'd be two twenty. Like, I want the nimbleness to be able to do that, the edit function on top of it. it I still produce errors, but it does save even more. So it's yeah. worth it. It's I, it's value to me. Uh, I like it. So I, I kept it. Yeah, um, I w- like, there was a guy who was verified who called me a beta male over the weekend that clearly bought Twitter Blue. And to me, that just, I, I won't even respond to that because, like, dude, like, if, if, there, if there's one thing that shows the insecurity there, like, first off, just using that term in general. But then to have the blue check mark with like thirty followers is like, dude, like, yeah. I mean, if there's anybody that's less secure on the planet than this individual, like, I, I'm, I'm yet to find them. Dude, they all, they all do the same thing. Like, uh, not all of them, but a lot of the Twitter blue guys, the new ones, you can always tell because again, they'll have like, it'll be like, what's their bio? It's like Pat's fan for life. Like, all right, yeah. here we go. And then you look at their feed, and then like half of it is like pro crypto yeah. shit. You know, yeah, crypto hippos buy one yeah. today. You know. Um, so, you know, for that, I was like, uh, well, I don't know about all that shit, but I need longer videos. So fuck it. I'm going to pay but for everybody it. who's stuck with Twitter and uh, continues to follow me and, and it has a positive influence on the space. Please stick around. Please. We need you. Yeah. Uh, last thing. What's the next show you're going to? The next show I'm going to might surprise you. It's a Ryzen show in Japan that I'm going Whoa. to in a couple of weeks. So I'm going to be in Tokyo on vacation. And I happened to just, I was like, I wonder if Ryzen's doing a show while I'm going. And they happened to be doing a show. So that's the next show I'm going to is, uh, I forget what the full name of the show is, but it's the Ryzen show on, I think it's April the 29th. So that's where I'm going to be. That's the next MMA show that I'm going to. As a, like, basically, just to, to go down and cover it and see what it's like to cover a Japanese MMA event. Because the period where I was, like, getting into MMA most was when Dream was, like, really killing it. And, like, we're doing awesome events. Um, and I would, like, PVR all the dream events and watch those and stay up late and watch. This is before I had kids and had the ability to, like, stay up at, like, 3 a.m. and watch dream events. And I, I have that, – that has, like, a real, like, spot in my heart. Because I, when I first started watching, Pride was kind of winding down. So, like, the, uh, the pageantry of Japanese MMA is something I've always wanted to just enjoy in person. I'm really looking forward to that. Man, I'm jealous. Like of all the years I've been around, I've never even. Been, well, I've been to Japan as a as a baby, but not really as a kid, but not really as a as an adult. <laughs> Certainly not since I became involved in MMA. So, take a lot of pictures, send me some. I'm very jealous, yeah. man. That's and then the next one after that, I'm going to a Unified in in uh, Calgary. So I'm looking forward to that uh, that show as well. I'll be doing commentary for them. So shout out to Unified. They call him Mister Canada around these parts. We call him Aaron Bronstetter. Give him a follow if you are so inclined. Strongly recommend it. Thank you so much, my friend. For taking part here, you can see his social there below. Give us a follow. Give him a follow. And follow Morning Combat everywhere you get your social media fun. Aaron, thank you so much. Great work, as always, both over the weekend and on today's show. 
We'll see you guys next time. I want to thank Showtime. I want to thank CBS Sports, Mikey, the whole crew. We got Luke Nocito there. We got Gaff. We got the whole gang. Thanks to everyone as well, Beyond Who Watched. We're back on Wednesday. And until next time, may all of your gains be loyal. Gervonta Tank Davis. King Ryan Garcia. Two undefeated stars, two journeys, one mega fight to make history. It doesn't get any better than this. Gervonta Davis versus Ryan Garcia, Saturday, April 22nd, live on pay per view. Like me, Lee Murray wanted to be world champion in the USC. He just happens to be involved in the largest cash robbery in the world. This is the sort of thing you see in Hollywood films. Heists, armed gang, huge amounts of money. The policeman, shorty, hoodie, Mr. Average, high vis, driver, and stopwatch. Fiendishly clever plan, which up to the moment they drove away had worked flawlessly. Catching lightning, only on Showtime, streaming with Paramount Plus.